Welcome to the 24th episode of the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Here I am again for you people. And I'm here with somebody who speaks a language related to Hungarian. Uh, they say that the deep structure is related to Hungarian. I live in Hungary, as some of you already know. Um, one thing that I've found out in approaching any language is that people will tell you, the native speakers will tell you, it's pronounced exactly the way it's spelled. And that leaves me hopeless, absolutely hopeless. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to ask our guest, who comes from Finland, to speak her name, which is, I think, the only three words in the language that doesn't use umlauts. Anyhow, <laughs> dear guest, who are you? Hi, <laughs> all. I'm Kaijalena Kolho. That's how we pronounce it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Kaijalena Kolho. Kaijalena Kolho is the head of pediatrics at Helsinki Children's Hospital, if I've got the affiliation right. And she I, is a... Go ahead. T- may, correct me. May correct I tell me. a story about my name? Because, do. because this do. is this is a linguistic joke also, <laughs> or, right. or story. So my father's name was Kai. My mother's name was Lena, and the word in between ja means the same as and, and that's why my oh. name is Kaya Lena, <laughs> and it's a female name. <laughs> what do they do for the second child? <laughs> <laughs> that's problematic always. <laughs> well, Kaya Lena, which is probably mispronounced, but there we are. Kaya Lena and I go back a long, long way, back to. Um, when Vanita Feldman was working on a new form of mitochondriopathy that manifested particularly in Finnish children um, and that had a substantial amount of iron in the newborn children's livers. And then after that, through work in uh, intrahepatic cholestasis and the genetics of intrahepatic cholestasis, through the agency of Laura Bull out in San Francisco... We met again, but we met only on paper. And now we've met electronically, but I've still never shaken her hand. And <laughs> here we are. You're not seeing it, but I'm here to tell you she's lovely. <laughs> I can't say the same for myself, but then we'll just leave that alone. Unfortunately, today's topic, or fortunately as it may be, today's topic for discussion is neither iron storage disease in, med- in mitochondriopathies, nor the genetics of intrahepatic familial cholestasis, but instead a protein called calprotectin, calprotectin and how to use it. Now, I'm older than dirt, which means that when I was in medical school, calprotectin hadn't been invented. So when I learned that Dr. <laughs> Dr. Kolho wanted to discuss how calprotectin can be used in diagnosing, in monitoring and so on and so forth with inflammatory bowel disease, I had to start going looking. And now I know that calprotectin, which is a protein found in the granules of neutrophils, have I got that right? Yeah. Is, is a, a, a chelator. That it, its job in life is to sop up iron that otherwise would be available to bacteria. In effect, it's a mammalian siderophore, except 
that bacterial siderophores are, after they've taken up iron, are drawn back into the bacterial cytoplasm, whereas, so far as I know, calprotectin just sort of sits there, holding on to its, uh, holding on to its chelated iron, the way that the way that Scrooge McDuck, or Uncle Dagobert for you German speakers, holds on to his money. <laughs> <laughs> so, have I got that right about, uh, have I got that right about calprotectin? I guess it might have a variety of functions. It's, it's not so crystal clear that what these, these are. It's, it's excreted by neutrophils, monocytes, and some other inflammatory cells to do but um, I think that the major issue is that it has something to do with the, our uh, immune defense mechanism. So, so it really is, uh, it's, it's a heterodimer protein mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and it uh, it's binds calcium in a way. But the, the key thing that why we can use it is that it's very stable. And that was the, the original uh, finding or innovation to see that that it's very stable in feces and it in a way it reflects the influx of granulocytes in in feces and and that's where the story of calprotectin in clinical practice started so calprotectin is a heterodimer and the, the and those two pieces of the molecule come together and form a unit when exposed to ionized calcium and then that exposes the ferric iron binding sites. And one of the potential purposes of exposing those binding sites is to, as I said, sop up iron in the extracellular yeah. space yeah. and to yeah. make it unavailable for bacteria. Yeah. Which means to me that if you have a bacterial inflammation or if you have a non-bacterial inflammation, either way, you might have calprotectin levels that are elevated. This is, the calprotectin reflects inflammation rather than source of inflammation or type of inflammation. Exactly, exactly. And that's the, the key thing in a way to, to keep in mind. It's not just bacterial processes that it's involved in. It, it's, it, it's involved also if there is like a viral infection uh -huh. in the gastrointestinal tract, it, the, the levels may increase or, or or whether ever non-specific, just think about a juvenile polyp. It's no, tiny. Really. It's yeah. tiny. <laughs> just just a couple of could be like like a centimeter or whatever, uh -huh. and it causes such kind of a, a reaction in, in the mucosa that one may detect highly elevated levels of calprotectin in feces. And how to explain that? What, what role <laughs> has calprotectin in juvenile polyps? It's non-specific. But it's clearly demonstrated, so there is a lot to research about that, what the mechanism might be. Now you talk, you're speaking, or excuse me, you said that it has a role possibly in other aspects of immune defense. Tell me about that. Uh, so some, I guess that that uh, in a way it's it's not. Um, it's it's a, one can detect calprotectin all over in the blood in the body. Uh -huh. It's it's you can detect in in blood or in synovial fluid if there is a inflammation related to juvenile arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. 
So it's just a part of the the, mm, the human immune system okay. whose functions we do not understand quite properly. But as gastroenterologists, we are very happy that it happens to be there. <laughs> who was the first person who f identified that calprotectin might be a decent way of tracking the ups and downs of inflammation in the human gut? Uh, then, then that's always possible because the findings that granulocyte levels in feces are increased related to gastrointestinal inflammation, those were made already mid-70s. Uh -huh. and, and so it was, the, in a way, there was this knowledge. But then it was the, the Norwegian group, it's Arne Rosset, who was the first author of the papers when they started to study in, in late 90s, like 98, 95, they published the, the studies where they actually showed that, that it's calprotectin that's, uh, that's there, one part. But, but uh, then after that, there are several studies showing other uh, granulocyte markers. So it's just, it's, I think it's good to keep in mind that it's a surrogate marker for the granulocyte influx. And why we use it in clinics is because it's so stable. There are different markers, and one, um, people have tried to, to find whether somebody would be more practical or more useful in clinical practice. But so far, like it's calprotectin that has taken over the clinical use. And it's based on it that, that it's so stable that if you leave a sample on a table, you can measure the levels even after one week, unless the sample grows mold, <laughs> then it might be hampered. And that's, well, o o that's also quite surprising because you know that that thesis is full of different type of enzymes and, 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 and it's not a stable process in there. I think I have to call you out on that. Are you quite sure that it's as stable as that? Because didn't you send me an article for review for reuse that said, um, hey, if you don't keep it refrigerated, then you get substantial variation after a, even a couple of hours. Let me see if I can locate that article. Mm -hmm. You must know no, what I'm thinking No, of. It's, you can mail it. You know, people, patients can mail it to the lab. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and so and that's, that's quite practical because then you can, it, it has been used like in the Netherlands, they've done a lot of studies related to home monitoring. Mm -hmm. And and uh, it's it's the stability of the the protein that allows it. You don't need to use use eyes when you send the samples. Also, and even a small delay in the lab is 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 allowed. If there are high levels, you you see it. There is daily variation, and if you keep a sample refrigerated, let's say for three months or half a year or something, three months, the 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 levels decline slightly. Okay, okay. But, but the, the protein as such does not disappear, so it's always detectable. I am, okay, I put it to you, and I'm going to be the prosecuting <laughs> attorney. Yeah. I put it to you, Dr. Kolho, yeah. that this is not the case in Hrenigen, because I'm looking now at that article, Calprotectin instability may lead to undertreatment in children with IBD. But that's um, six days of storage at room temperature. Mean percentage changes from, uh, from baseline calprotectin concentrations in stool and extraction buffer, thirty-five percent and forty-six percent, respectively. 
the same. Now, I, I, I grant you that in yeah. Finland, there's no, no, never any problem keeping things <laughs> cold. You just have to put it outside the door. <laughs> but the, the, the issue, there are reports uh -huh. reporting that, that okay, in a, in a, um, uh, in, uh, at individual level, there is some variation if you take several samples during the day. Should, whether you should take a morning sample or evening sample or whatever. But the most important thing is that if you have really high levels, like 3,000, it doesn't matter if it decreases like 30% or even 40% because it's still elevated. So, so in a way, it's, it's very good in picking up people who have elevated levels compared to those who have close to zero. I understand now, and I, I was, I was playing advocatus diaboli. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, that's your role. You need to do I, that. Well, she, yes. otherwise we are just uh, saying yes, yes. <laughs> well, I am happy to be part of a mutual admiration society, but yeah. still, I, you know, okay, let, let, let's move yeah. on before I start to blush even redder. Yeah. Um, if um, before calprotectin came along. Was the only way real to monitor uh, inflammatory bowel disease repeated endoscopies? Well, we monitored the patients by asking that, how are you doing? And mm -hmm. I remember when I entered the medical school or when I started to specialize in pediatric gastro, it was like we went to see that, hey, how are you? And they always said that, I'm fine. And, and then when we started the new medication, we usually said that, okay, if this doesn't help you, then we'll do surgery. And you can guess it what the me. patient... It helps me, it helps yeah, me. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what we learned quite quickly. And so I think that, that we have been so lucky that we have some kind of objective measurement because I'm also, in when we started to show the patients the results... The, the discussions changed. We said that, hey, how are you doing? They always said, 16-year-old boys, old, old boys, they always say, I'm fine. And when I showed that, okay, do you see that your CALPRO value is, is this much higher than it was like three months ago or half a year ago? Then they say, oh, actually, it's been a bit worse during the last previous month or something. And to my mind, huh. I think it's, it's also related to clinical practice. The impact has been that the patients get something, something that they can look on. And we can't prove it. Nobody has made a study about it. But it's also, to my mind, uh, increases compliance because they see that, okay, if I take my medication, the levels might be lower. And if they skip their medication, Although telling us that they've taken the pills, they mm -hmm. see that that, mm -hmm. that there is something that changes. It gives also yeah. also motivation for for the adolescents. Motivation in adolescence. Oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> That's our job. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to be a pathologist. Department. You, you don't need to str struggle with that one. <laughs> Well, this is fun. This is just fun chatting with you. What, what other things would you like to tell us about in terms of using pro, using calprotectin, and how best to use it? Do you do you encounter instances in which people are using it wrong? Yeah, yeah. I think that that diagnostic uh, investigations might be delayed if people are like saying that uh, the uh, patient has very clear symptoms like bloody diarrhea. 
it's it's the same thing that that if you see that that there is blood in feces, you do not need to test for whether there is blood in feces. You can see it. And the same is that if the, the symptoms point out quite que- clearly to IBD, you need to go do the endoscopies. It's it doesn't uh, help you anywhere just by waiting for the calprotectin sample or so. The other thing is also that that people hmm, the, the the common mistakes is that that uh, that the the measurements are usually so it's it's lab medicine that the standard curve is made so that values below 50 or or below 100 that it's not a straight line it's like more like a curve so mm-hmm. the accuracy of the measurements or the 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 precise values is not that good those who have worked in lab they know what i'm talking about because 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 uh, and it this same applies for the very high values so whether it's 2000 2500 or 3000 it, it's it could be slightly slightly variation in in pipetting and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then be, be, because the best uh, uh, accuracy is when when the standard curve is like straight line and that's sure, adjusted sure. between 100 and 1000 in most most labs so those and, and it's not like mathematics so if you have like 453 it's about the same as as 400 or something it's it's one needs to see that this is more like a measure of the level and not not exact one needs to take into account also the interassay variation and think about that that in but with which uh, uh, measurement or which ELISA the values have been uh, determined or defined. As always, you need to stand back and say, how was it measured? And what are the problems inherent in that manner of measurement? And how much should we trust a number? Exactly. Because... There we are back with back in the examining room with the 16-year-old boy. Well, anything is better than what a 16-year-old boy tells you. I was one. I can, I can vouch for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I remember when we started, we, we started very early using, using this. It was in early 2000, 2001 and 2002 when the first reports in pediatric patients were published in JBJN. And it was a colleague now retired, and he read the article and said that, Hey, this sounds quite good. Do you, do you, dear friends, think that we should have this type of measurement? And during those days, it was so easy in Finland. We had a colleague who was working in lab, and he set up the measurement within, let's say, two months or so. So we started to use calprotectin already quite routinely. Way back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, already back then. But at that time, we, it took some time to get the results more than like a month or so. And I remember all those discussions when these adolescent boys especially were there and we were discussing how you're doing and we know that they say, yes, I'm fine. And then, then we said that, okay, I'm happy with you. But then on the next visit, I said that, okay, you had somewhat elevated calprotectin value. And we used to say, this just indicates that you have the disease. We are all happy that that you are doing fine, and this shows that you need the medication. 
But now there has been a change that we tried to achieve normal values of color protecting, whatever uh-huh. the means. And, and, and at times, to my mind, we need to have a proper discussion with the colleagues that is it realistic to reach the normal, completely normal levels? Do we burden the patients with more investigations and uh-huh. and uh-huh. and more uh-huh. drugs because we switch drugs trying to reach even more better response? And what are the levels that are acceptable if a person has uh, a chronic disease? That's something that there is no clear answer. Wonderful. Again, hey, we have to treat the patient and not the numbers. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and well, and that's that, where that one can holds, go wrong. Anyway, that holds anywhere, I think. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, here and we are. Yeah. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I'm 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 about I'm about to start the procedure of, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the pilot has turned on the fasten your seatbelt sign, which means that we are rapidly approaching our descent into Helsinki International Airport. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) S1 annual meeting will be here in in 2025. (laughs) Well, that aside, it's almost time to to, uh, lower, lower the landing gear and put up the flaps because our time for this podcast is starting to run out. What would you like to tell us about calprotectin on which we haven't yet touched? I think that that now the community, the Baitcaster community, has realized that how how wonderful it is that we have an objective marker that's quite cheap to measure, and 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 it helps us to decide how well we do with the management of our patients and do we really reach uh, a, a remission or it's, it, do we, are we just talking about the general well-being? It helps us to conduct studies, but like said, we do not just don't need to stick to numbers. But I, to my mind, it's, it's the best value is also to pick those who have severe inflammation, but they neglect the symptoms, and those who tell that I'm doing five, fine, even though their caltrotectin is more than 1,000, because that's alarming. We all know that continuous inflammation lasting for several years, that's a risk factor for cancer. And, and by using it screening every now and then, we can in a way adjust that whether whether the patient is is recognizing the symptoms and and whether there is something silent going on, and then we can also avoid endoscopies in patients who are in complete remission. Also, if their calprotectin levels are, are close to zero and they are they don't have any symptoms, so. Well, I'll leave you with a thought that's just crossed my mind, and that we have not anywhere near enough time to go into. But stulguayak is one thing, but um, maybe if a juvenile polyp can produce enough calprotectin to be measurable in a stool sample, what role might calprotectin have in larger screenings of people for large bowel tumors? 
Yeah, but it's 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 elevated. I said in, we in don't have enough time, but you can <laughs> talk fast. <laughs> okay, I, I try to talk very fast and say that it, it's also elevated in tumors, and if there are some kind of ulcers, <laughs> so it's non-specific. One needs right. to to know that, and also always interpret the results related to how the the patient is doing. Okay, thank you so much. Well, there I see the roofs of Helsinki underneath us as the plane descends. And usually at this point, we turn on the intercom for the cabin and we play a song from the country in which we're about to land and a song that means something to somebody. Have you chosen a song for us? Yes, I did. I was asked and I'm very happy to present this song because it's also about flying. And it's in Finnish. The word, its title is Lintu and it means a bird. And the story behind this is that I once heard when this song was played and I instantly started to think about my grandmother. And then I thought that, oh, just like my grandmother is talking. And it turned out that my grandmother had actually written the lyrics for the second and the third verse of this song. And it t- tells about how one needs to spread your wings and, and fly high and see the beauty of the world. To listen to the song in full length, please check out our SPGAN playlist. Thank you very much. I've I've had a wonderful time, and I hope that it hasn't been too bad for you. <laughs> Thank you, Alice. <laughs> Enjoyed our discussing, and let's shake hands in Vienna. And 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 if not there, then in the annual meeting of SPGAN in Helsinki in 2025. Very much looking forward to it. Yeah. Bye bye now. Yeah. Bye bye. <laughs>